All right, so let's get the Bible open and let's get ready to go. Ow. Hi. This is good. I'm going to get used to this at some point, but right now, I'm really excited. I've got friends here from the Summit West, right? It's good. That's always good. I know there's a lot of visitors this morning. I want to say welcome. Okay, welcome to Kaya College and Young Adults Ministry. So, we were talking about this the other day. This is rare. There's not very many college ministries like this, and uh, I praise God for it. It's really exciting. So, I hope you feel welcome today. Uh, we're going to be in Romans chapter 1. Okay. Lots of whoops this morning. Okay. Um, now, I do want to say this before we get started. I did just recently find out that Dan actually wasn't the perpetrator of the crab apple incident. So I'm starting to believe that there is a cult of some sort. Um, I wanted to get a picture up on the screen. The crab apples were displayed in order to symbolize some sort of false deity. Um, they're organized very mathematically, uh, like ancient uh, Egyptian hieroglyphs. Some, one of them was wedged within a bush in a very odd way. And so we need to, we're going to have a prayer meeting and a time of fasting after service today. Um, is this already recording, this type of stuff? Okay, that's too bad. But anyway, uh, so we're going to find out who you are, and we're going to weed out Satanism and Kaya. Yeah, we'll stone you with the hedge apples. Okay. Um, so the last uh, couple weeks, we have been introducing Romans chapter 1, okay? And we haven't gotten real far, but I felt good about it. Have you felt good about it? I hope so. Uh, so we've gotten through just the very first verse, and let's review that real briefly before we get into uh, the remainder of this introduction that Paul gives us. Okay, the book of Romans was a letter written to the churches in Rome. It was intended to be shared amongst these other churches, and within this letter... Paul, I mean, it's a long letter, okay? It's, it's 16 chapters. There's a lot, lot that Paul covers here. And he talks about what salvation is, what our relationship to one another as the church is. And he talks about um, uh, his, God's plan for mankind. And, it, and it's a, a great book, and we're going to have a lot of fun studying it, and we're going to learn a lot. Uh, but in this introduction, what Paul does for us is he gives us some insight and into how he perceives himself and how he wants to display himself before the Romans that he's writing this letter to, um, whom he's planning on coming to visit shortly. Okay? And he identifies himself in three ways. Okay? The first way that he identifies himself is as a servant. And we talked about this extensively. Okay? This word servant is the equivalent of slave. And we discussed how we too should be slaves. Just as Paul saw himself as a slave to Jesus Christ, we also should see ourselves in that light. And that term servant is a title that deals with our station, with our station, okay? Uh, and, and the de definition of station is the position uh, as of persons or things in a scale of estimation, rank, or dignity standing, okay? So it's the idea that um, we have a lot in life, that the moment that we accepted Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, that that positioned us in a very unique and particular way, okay? In other words, what position... Uh, that's been reserved for us in this pilgrimage, in this time. Okay, so wait, wait, let's, 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 let's look at this very carefully, okay? 
When you accepted Jesus Christ, suddenly what happened was when you were, when you were pulled out of that ransom, okay, when you were delivered from that hostage scenario, and Satan had you entrapped in this world, okay, you became a pilgrim here. You became an alien here. Now, now look, you are a prince. You are a princess. Okay? That's who you are. But we recognize what God has for you in waiting in heaven. We recognize that. But while you were here, you serve as a pilgrim, and you serve as a servant. And that is your station, and that is your lot in life. That as long as you live and dwell in this darkness called the world, your job is to convert as many souls for the sake of your master as possible. That is your work, and that is your station. And so that leads us to the next part, apostle. Apostle is a title that deals with our operation. Okay, now we, we took some time last week to kind of talk about and, and delineate between what it means to be an apostle historically, okay, to have that title apostle, right, that Paul had, but also we talked about our apostleship, okay? The term apostle means sent one. And we too, just as Paul was called to be sent to the Gentiles, and he was separated as a specific and unique position as an apostle, we inspirationally recognize that we also were sent. That our job and our operation in this world is to go and to deliver that message to the world. That is our job. That is our operation. And if you aren't doing your job, if, if you has anybody ever no called, no showed before? You guys are familiar with that term? It's a term that's often used when you work at like McDonald's. <laughs> you know? I remember I worked at McDonald's when I was 16. One of the worst things ever I've ever done is work at McDonald's. But at least some at that time, there was like only like four or five places you could work. Okay? This is before at least some blossomed into the metropolis that it is. <laughs> but um, there was a time when there was only like a handful of places you could work, and I, had, I worked at McDonald's. Okay? I won't apologize for that. But I will say that I haven't, I haven't had any McDonald's in about, I think it's, well, I got, I went with Joe on a, trip to Colorado. Remember when we went with your dad to Colorado for the snowboarding trip? And I threw up. You remember that? That was because I ate, uh, I got a number two. And I was 18 at the time. I haven't had McDonald's since then. A couple of incidents where I had to eat breakfast at McDonald's, but that doesn't quite count. Wait, where was I? Oh, yeah. So when I worked at McDonald's, it was common that people no-called, no-showed. And in a place like McDonald's, you have a lot of really immature employees, don't you? Are we familiar with that? Yeah, there's a lot of immature employees at places like that, that type of workplace. And in their immaturity, uh, in their, you know, you know, hangover from the previous night, days, they, they, they slept in and they're like, oh, I'm just not going to go in, or whatever, right? And that showed their immaturity. Now, here's the deal. You are called to a job. You are an employee. You are a servant to God. All-powerful, creator of the earth, right? Beginning and end, he actually hired you. He called your name out. And you said, you, you filled out the application and you took the job. And yet, many of us are in a position of no call, no show. We're not functioning in the operation that God has called us to. Now, you might be on the payroll, but you aren't going to collect the check. And that sounds real cute. But let me say it more seriously. You call yourself a Christian. Now, you might be saved, 
But if you're not doing the work of Jesus Christ, if you're not functioning as an apostle, man, it's not really fair that you get to carry that name. It's not really fair that you get to call yourself a Christian if you're not going. Your responsibility as a believer is to take the message of Jesus Christ to the world. Now the next identifier that Paul talks about is being separate. And he says that he's separated unto the gospel of God. And, and that title deals with our condition. Our condition. As God, has, as God has positioned us, he's also created a new condition for us. Okay, Where before we were in darkness and we were being held hostage, now we've been separated out of that and brought into something new. Something perfect. And the sins of who we, we were have been washed away, and he's called our condition something different. We aren't lost anymore. We've been found. We've been rescued. It's a, separate is a powerful title. This title has to do with the work that God did in us, the, the work that he did, not the work that we're doing, the work that he's doing and has done in us. And when we are obedient in salvation, God washes us and delivers us, and he makes us something new. He set us apart. From the wickedness of the world, and it brought us into a relationship with Jesus Christ. We are separate, and we aren't just separate, we're separate unto the gospel of God, and that holds power. That makes you unique. And what else would you do but be a servant and be an apostle to this world? What else would you do when He's given you freedom? When he's delivered you from bondage, when he's called you an heir, when he's made you a victor, when he's prepared for you a mansion, what else would you do but serving? Right? So let's get in today's, to today's content. Uh, are we ready? Yeah, something new, fresh. I'm going to read verse 1 again. Is that appropriate? I, I struggled with that when I was studying. Like, do I read the verse again? It's just one verse. Yes. God said yes. So we're going to do it. <laughs> Romans chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God, which, speaking of the gospel of God, which he had promised afore by his prophets in the, scripture, in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, Jesus Christ. Christ, our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh. Okay, so we're going to talk about prophecy. Oh. oh. Okay, now it's important to understand that Jesus Christ, this is important before we get into this. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Messiah, was spoken of repeatedly throughout the Old Testament. That's a crucial thing to understand. And that his story of redemption was inlaid. Okay, both woven in and resting on the surface, very overt and very beautifully hidden all throughout the Old Testament. It's important to know that, that Jesus Christ was prophesied repeatedly and in great detail. Now listen to me. When we talk about prophecy, a lot of the time, and I think this is super true of millennials, and you can bear witness, okay? But when the term prophecy comes up, a lot of times we get kind of like squeamish, right? I mean, I do anyway. When, the, when, the, when the, the topic of prophecy comes up, and there's lots of reasons for that. 
See, many times when I hear the word prophecy, I think about nut jobs. I do. Right? Do you, do you think about that? When you hear the term prophecy, you start thinking, okay, like, what is it that's going to be, be said? What is it that's going to come out of this person's mouth? Or some person who's making a prediction or trying to unpack some sort of mysterious Bible code. Right? You guys familiar with that? That type of thinking, that type of speaking? It's very prevalent in our world today. And these are people that are trying to prove many times just how smart they are, right? How much they know. And they speak from a place of hearsay. They speak from a place of theory. And a lot of times they speak from assumption, right? They've got some sort of great peripheral idea that they've connected to some sort of word that they found in Scripture, and they try to reinterpret it. And a lot of times what we see when we see prophecy being spoken of today, we're talking about man's opinions, Aren't we? And Paul ran into this. And if you want to, you can turn over to Acts chapter 17, if you want to. But I think I've got some verses displayed. Okay? This was common for Paul, too. Paul saw this in his day. Okay? The apostles saw this happening. In Acts chapter 17, verse 21, it refers to these people in Athens as people who were spending their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. Right? This is a type of people who are so fixated on getting some sort of new word or new idea that they focus all their attention and all their mind power and all their energy on scraping together some sort of mysterious information so they can sound how sm- so they can sound as smart as possible. So they can actually, this is really what it's code for, is they're trying to draw disciples unto themselves. They're trying to draw people to them. And that's many times, many, many times when we see people. And and in a moment here, we're going to talk about the difference. See, Paul ran into this. And these are the type of people who who like to have their ears itched, as we see in 2 Timothy 4.3. Paul warns Timothy about this. These are the type of people that like to have their ears itched. In other words, these are people that are constantly looking for more information. And rather than fixating their eyes and their ears and their heart on the truth of what Scripture says, they're looking for these peripheral ideas and they want to talk. And and this is so common among young college men, college-age men. You will get sucked into this. You get some guy that seems like he has a little bit of wisdom, a little bit of knowledge. And they draw you in with their intellectual garb, right? Their, 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 Their gift of gab. Right? And they, and they draw you in. And all they're doing and all you're looking to, to, to have done is have your ears, the, the tickle of your ears itched. And I'm telling you, it's super dangerous. Looking for hidden knowledge. Looking for hidden information. Stuff that isn't overt in the text. You've got to be careful. These people I like to hear themselves talk. 1 Timothy 1.6 these people like to hear themselves talk. They're like, they're like a sounding brass, like tinkling cymbals. It's just vain noise. It's just background noise. I know in college, well, even today, I'm, I'm going to admit, but I love uh, what is referred to as like art noise. And so like in the studio when you're working, it's difficult sometimes to listen to like pop music because it demands so much of your attention. Maybe this is common for you when you study. Like maybe you like to listen to classical music. But in the studio... Uh, like just lots of reverb, like a band with just noise. 
right? Like Sonic Youth or something like that. When you're making art, it's right? Is that what you listen to? What did you listen to? Beyonce? Dan, what did you listen to in the studio? What did you like to listen to? You forgot? Everything. Everything. But, like, but the, the thing about that is it's just vain noise. It's not orchestrated. It's not constructed. It's just, it's just sounds, right? Like someone re- recorded the sound the refrigerator makes, and, and they made an album of it. And I bought it, and I listened to it. No, not like for real. Actually, that happened. I, I bought that album. The 10-minute track of just refrigerator noises in the middle of the album. But, but my point is that that's vain noise, it's empty noise, and that's what a lot of these people who are talking about prophetic truths sound like. They sound like my refrigerator. Because the information is empty. And we've got to be careful. And in Romans chapter 16, verse 17, these are the people that must be avoided. That's how Paul refers to them. These are people that need to be avoided because they're not going to provide you with insight. They're not going to disciple you and mentor you in terms of growing in your ministry involvement. They're not going to show you how to be a servant. They're going to show you how to be the smartest person on your block or in your classroom. And you too will soon sound like a tinkling cymbal. Does it make sense to you? Man, this is a particular warning to you. Avoid it. And it can be abrasive to hear. And as Christians, when we hear people talking about prophecy, uh, because we often believe that this, this is going to be vain or assumptive information, we kind of recoil, don't we? Don't we have a tendency, like if, if we're like, we bring a friend to church and Pastor Sam is talking about Daniel, we get a little squeamish, don't we? Like, oh boy, here comes the crazy stuff. I believe it, but I'm afraid that my friend is never going to come back. So. Right? And your cheeks are like red through the whole service, and your friend's like, what are you so uptight about? Then you become the real distraction, right? But you ever see what I'm saying? We kind of recoil. But here's the deal, and, and this is important. But our fears... And our annoyances and our discomfort should not justify a disdain for prophetic teaching as long as it's biblical. Don't be afraid of what God calls, what God calls right, what God calls good. Don't be afraid of that. Don't be afraid of that. I've got a, I've got a quote on the next slide here. Sorry, whoa, whoa. What happened to the whoops? They've become groans. Okay, go back for a second. Um, prophecy is important. Prophecy is crucial to who we are as believers. And I'm going to hope to get you to a place where you understand that. Okay, that you understand that, that Jesus Christ, the gospel of Jesus Christ, existed for thousands of years before his life, death, burial, and resurrection. Like, it existed. It was there. It was present. It was present. So let's look real quick. Now can we go to the next? Are you ready now? Okay. Why should we start? This is a book that I have. It's an old book. All the good books are old, by the way. Just remember that. Uh, They don't write good stuff anymore about the Bible. They got bored with the good stuff, so now they're writing trash. Okay, so here we go. Uh, why should this is the this is the introduction to a book called Prophecy for Today? Okay, uh, why should we study prophecy? 
Why should we study prophecy? There are many people today who have relegated the prophetic scriptures to oblivion. They feel that man has to either be mentally unbalanced, a religious fanatic, or a heretic in doctrine to manifest interest in the study of prophecy. Is this not how people think? Yes. Yet, we find that the prophetic scriptures occupy a great portion of, God's, of the Word of God. In both the Old Testament and New Testaments, whole books are devoted to the subject. In fact, approximately one-fourth of the Word of God was prophetic at the time it was written. If God has devoted that much space to the subject, it certainly behooves us, the Word, to give attention to it. Amen? Amen. I want to say something very important. This brings us into our key point. Prophecy has always been important to God, and it remains important to God. Okay? The key point is this. God has and always will hold people accountable to whether or not they believe the prophetic content of his word. He's going to hold us accountable. He is going to judge us for whether or not we believed him at the simplicity of the truths that are espoused within the text that he's handed down. God did not leave us and abandon us. Okay, You want, you want to know what a relationship with Jesus Christ is? It's listening to his very words. And they are great in detail. They are divinely inspired. They are complex in nature. The depths of them can never fully be exhausted. And yet, even the prophecy is shallow enough for the newest of Christ, a Christian, the newest believer, can understand prophetic truth in God's word. one-fourth of our Bible devoted to prophecy? Right? God has always and will, and will always hold people accountable to whether or not they believe the prophecies that he teaches us. Turn to John chapter 5. John chapter 5, verse 36. Okay? And it's on the screen, but I'll read it as well. So you have multiple, multiple connections. Okay, let's go. Verse 36. This is Jesus talking. Okay? Um, and he says, but I have greater witness than that of John. Okay, speaking of John the Baptist. For the works which the Father hath given me to finish, the same works that I do bear witness of me that the Father hath sent me. And the Father himself, which hath sent me, hath borne witness of me. Yea, have neither heard his voice at any, or ye have never, never heard his voice at any time, nor seen his shape. Okay, so that's a, that's a declaration that he's making against the Pharisees. You guys, you guys have never even seen my father because you refuse. What he's about to say is very damning, okay? What he's about to tell them is, look, you don't even know the shape, let alone the form. Like, okay, now I'm getting into art terms. Okay, a shape is two-dimensional, correct? Okay, a form is three-dimensional. A form is three-dimensional, and the word of God is three-dimensional because it can be lived out within us. So check this out. You don't even know his shape. You don't even understand the basic simplicity, the, the two-dimensional state, the outline. You don't even see his silhouette. You can't make out the darkness from the light because ye have not his word abiding in you. For whom he hath sent, him ye believe not. Search the scriptures, for in them ye think ye have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. And ye will not come to me that ye might have life. I receive not honor from men, 
But I know you, that ye have not the love of God in you. I am come in my Father's name, and ye receive me not. If another shall come in his own name, ye, ye will receive him. How can ye believe which receive honor one of another and seek not the honor that cometh from God only? Do not think that I will, uh, that I will accuse you to the, to the Father. There is one that accuseth you, even Moses, in whom ye trust. For had, had ye believed Moses, ye would have believed me, for he wrote of me. But if ye believe not his writings, how shall ye believe my words? Okay, so catch this. This is super important. They didn't believe the writings of Moses. They didn't believe the prophetic words that the prophets of old wrote about who the Messiah would be. They didn't believe those things. And because they didn't believe those things, they didn't see them, they didn't have eyes to see those truths, that when Jesus Christ came, they, they not only refused to believe that, that's who, that, that he was the Messiah, but they had the wherewithal the, or the blindness to function in a way that led to his crucifixion. Because they were so blind to the truth of what prophecy said. Do you understand how crucial the prophetic nature of the gospel is? I'm going to take a moment. Can we do an exercise? I don't know if you ever did this, Dan. You exercises? How are we getting up and like moving? Okay. By exercise, I mean, I want you guys to take a moment because, well, I can tell that you're tired, A. Right? So this will help shake things up a little bit. But what I want you to do is I want you to take your beautiful digital Bible that has a search engine in it. And you can even use your treasury of scripture knowledge if you're familiar with that. I just like saying the word, words treasury scripture knowledge. It sounds so holy, doesn't it? Okay? What we're doing is that we're going to take a moment right now and we are going to look for passages in the Old Testament that deal with the coming of Jesus Christ. Okay? Now, now, now be careful. I want this to be Jesus' first coming. Okay? I want you to try to find old prophecies throughout the, the prophets. And if you get, you know, if you get desperate, Google... Google works, okay? If you want to sound like you know what you're talking about, just hit up Google, and you'll, they'll get, someone will give you a verse. But if you know how to use your Bible a little bit, uh, then I want you to go, and I want you to look and find one verse that holds a prophecy of Jesus coming, his first coming, his first advent. Can you do that? That might be daunting for some of you, but let's, just, let's give it a go. You've got, what, one minute and 30 seconds. Seems fair? Ready, go. And when you got it, just hold it tight. Sorry, I don't have music right here. Soothing white noise. Art, art noise. That's true. That's I need you guys to look. You got to help me out. You're helping me write. My, go to the blank screen, Miles. You're helping me write my message. Okay, so help me out here.
first advent is preferable. You know, baby Jesus versus... Okay, are we ready? Okay, let's do it. Somebody raise your hand. Micah's got one. You ready to write these down, Miles? I see that you're texting. Or, oh, no, you're actually looking too. You're participating. Amen. Okay, so Micah, go ahead, and he's going to type that in as we go. We won't be able to see it, apparently, but... Uh, Micah's five, two. Oh! <laughs> Beautiful, beautiful. Uh, you guys understand how crazy it is? That, okay, Micah wrote that 700 years before, before Christ was born. And, and he said that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. So Micah, 700 years before Christ's birth, knew exactly where Jesus would be born. Interesting, interesting. Huh? Yeah? Okay. Someone else? Yeah, but uh, Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53, the entire chapter. Dude, well, come on, you're taking two. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. No, people are getting angry. You get one. Okay, you get one. Read that, please. Read the short one, please. The uh, short one. Yeah. Wait, this is being. This is uh, at the cross. It's an entire. Song. It's still his life, right? Yes. We'll just read a portion that that okay, is explicit. Uh, he said, "My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken?" Which came true. That's pretty explicit. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Connor. Psalm 118, 25 through 27. Save now, I beseech thee, O Lord. O Lord, I beseech thee, said now prosperity, which is Hosanna. Mm-hmm. Um, blessed be he that cometh in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you out of the house of the Lord. God is the Lord, which hath showed us light by the sacrifice of cords, even unto the horns of the altar. Mm. Okay, so prophecy of his death. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I'll go. Um, Isaiah 9-6. Okay. Okay, so interpret that for us. I have it. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Awesome. Good. Yeah, Andrew. Genesis 3.15. Okay. Both the best boys. Got the same verse. Uh, and I'll put enmity between thee and the woman, between thy seed and her seed, and shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Yeah, so uh, prophecy of Christ conquering Satan. Yeah, when he rose from the dead. Absolutely. Yes. Deuteronomy uh, 15, uh, or, sorry, 18, 18. Um, I, can get there. I will raise them up a prophet from among their brethren, like unto thee, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak unto them all that I shall command of him. 19, and it shall come to pass that whosoever will not hearken unto my words, which he shall speak in my name, I will require it of him. Okay, good, awesome. Yeah, 
Will do, we'll do, oh. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, thy king cometh unto thee. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding upon an ass upon and pulled the bull of an ass of Zechariah 9. Okay, so, so Christ's entrance into Jerusalem. Yes, Lisa. That's a hard one to read, isn't it? Woo. I also like that verse because it tells us that Jesus was kind of normal looking, like me. I like that. Makes me feel better. Uh, okay, let me do, yeah, let's do one more. Jeanette. Linda. I can't tell by your, I, look, I was looking at your hair, and I always, that's how I tell the, just give me some time, right? Give me some time. Awesome. Okay, so did you get those? There's many more. Go ahead and bring them up. See what we got. Oh, there's a lot of people that have them. We have to stop. This could go on, right? In fact, it could go on and on because Bible scholars have come to believe that somewhere around 300 to 330 of these prophecies exist in the Old Testament. That's a lot, isn't it? 300 to 330, depending on, you know, certain verses are, are maybe not as obvious as others, okay? Um, yeah, so that's just the ones that we looked up. Now go to the next slide. I put a couple of verses up here. This one, which is the one that Micah actually mentioned. And then uh, go to the next one. Next slide. Isaiah seven fourteen says that Messiah will be born of a virgin. Okay, these are just a couple. Now, now here's the point. The probability of these accounts being fulfilled and confirmed in the historical accounts of the four gospel witnesses is astronomically ridiculous. Like the likelihood of, of all of these things coming true in one individual and that those witnesses being accounted of in four different writings, okay, is insane. It's insane. And some of you, when I was a kid, I heard this research. It was pretty compelling to me, so I want to share it with you. Some of you may be familiar with the research a man named Peter Stoner did in the 50s. Okay, now, he was a mathematician and chairman of Pasadena City uh, College in the 1950s, and he did the work of finding st- the statistical likelihood of eight of these over 300 prophecies coming true. He just took eight of the most obvious ones, right? And what he discovered was if these accounts of Jesus are accurate, then the statistical probability of the prophecies coming true would be uh, only 1 in 10 to the 17th power. Okay, what that means is that's a 1... One out of one with 17 zeros after it. Okay? Now, he, he, he does this beautiful picture here that he paints. Okay, have you seen this before? Some of you may have seen this before. Okay, so this is what he writes. Let us try to visualize this chance. If you mark one of ten tickets and place all of the tickets in a hat and thoroughly stir them and then ask a blindfolded man to draw one, his chance of getting the, the right ticket is one in ten. Right? Simple enough, right? Right? One in ten. Okay, suppose that we take 10 to the 17th power, silver dollars, and lay them on the face of Texas. They will cover all of the state of Texas two feet deep, right? 
Two feet deep. That's like to my knees. The entire state of Texas, silver dollars, two feet deep. That's a, is that a lot? Okay. Uh, now, mark one of these silver dollars and stole, stir the whole mass thoroughly all over the state, blindfold a man, and tell him that he can travel as far as he wishes, but he must pick up one silver dollar and say that this is the right one. What chance would we have of getting the right one? Just the same chance that the prophets would have had of writing these eight prophecies and having them all come true in any one man from their day to the present time, providing they, they wrote using their own wisdom. That's eight of the 300 prophecies. Do you guys catch that? I mean, maybe you aren't good at reading and I read too fast or I messed you up, but listen to me. This is insane and proves to us that God's word is divine. But it does more than that. It does more than that. Now, you might be able to refute some of the minute points of Peter Stoner's work, but you cannot deny... You cannot deny the improbability of this. Okay? And if Jesus was spoken of in the Old Testament... And his life fulfilled those writings. You with me so far? If this is true, if Jesus' life fulfilled these writings, then the Bible is absolutely a God-inspired book and more, perhaps more significant than that. If the prophecies concerning his first coming have been fulfilled so explicitly in the first advent, then how should we view the prophecies of his second coming? Uh oh. See, that puts the onus on you. Right? Like, like, you're smarter than the Pharisees were. You've got it all figured out. You accepted Jesus. Good job. Now, what are you going to do with the, the prophecies that have yet to be fulfilled? What are you going to do with them? Are you going to believe the prophetic word concerning his second coming? And how? Okay, listen to me. I don't mean just believe that you can, like, we can sit down and talk about eschatology and tickle each other's ears again, right? And, like, sit down and have these conversations where you know, like, well, uh, it appears as though there is going to be three and a half years, and, and, and you talk about the tribulation, and you understand all the, the details of the millennial reign, and you recognize, okay, all these, no, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the prophetic nature of the epistles, and the implications they have on your life because you don't really believe them if it doesn't affect the way you live. This is exactly what Sam was saying in the last service. Exactly. Listen. If you believe God's words about what he has for us and what he plans on doing, it should absolutely affect the way you live. Key point. As New Testament Christians, it is our responsibility to live in expectation of the future fulfillment of biblical prophecy. It is. It should, it should change the way we live. It should change the way we believe. Now let's look at a few of these. Let's just look at a few. Much of the New Testament prophecy provides us precious insight into how we should walk. And I want to, I want to prove this to you. You still need the other slide? Yes. Yes. Dang, I'm sorry. I, I packed the, the slides full to make it easier for you, and I'm sorry, I'm making it harder by moving too fast. 
Um, so let me just read to you, and then we can turn to the next slide here in a second. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 51. This might sound familiar because it was in the last service. Sam stole my notes, apparently. Okay? 1 Corinthians 15, 51. Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. Now, maybe you didn't recognize it. That's a prophetic truth. God's telling us what he plans on doing when he raptures the church out of this world and delivers his his bride to himself, what he plans on doing. And the question is, how is that truth, how is that knowledge going to change the way that you live? See, he is coming for his church, and no man knows when. That's what that says, right? You don't know when it's going to happen, and when it happens, it's going to happen fast. How does that truth, that simple truth, change the way you live right, right, right now? Right now. See, that isn't some sort of like future thought or some sort of great notion. That's an ever-present thing with us. You know, John the Baptist and the, and the people that, that followed him, um, we won't get into the history of this, but the, the, the people that followed him lived in light of the, the, the idea that Christ was coming in, at any moment. And these people lived, they were, a lot of them were cave dwellers. They lived outside of the city. Okay? They lived in caves and things like that. And these people had access. This is where the Dead Sea Scrolls come from, is this people group. Right? They found their texts because they were every day in the Word, in the Scriptures, learning what it meant to follow the Messiah, who had, even yet, who had yet to come yet. Like they, didn't even, they didn't know when he was coming, but they believed he was coming any day. And it affected the way that they lived. And they were considered extreme for their time. And people looked at them and saw them as some sort of weird, bizarre group of people. And these people were preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, and he hadn't even come yet. Now, that is an example to us of how we should live. In light of prophetic truths, truths like this, if you, don't, if you believe that Jesus Christ could come back at any moment, and that you, there will be an account for what you've done, how pressing does today become? How pressing does your afternoon, your Sunday afternoon become? How important are the conversations that you have? Well, let's go, let's look at the next verse. Matthew chapter 16, verse 19. Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth, where moth and rust doth doth corrupt, and where thieves break through and steal. Okay, so this is instruction for us. Don't invest in material things. Don't invest in temporal things. Uh, 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 What should we invest in? Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt and where thieves do not break through nor steal. Okay, this this is prophetic insight for us of what God values and what will be eternal. Okay? What is going to make it past this life? What happens when you die? What, what, What makes it past this material, physical world and into the next realm? What is it that makes it through the fire? And if you look at scripture, you find pretty quickly that the only type of treasure that will make it from the temporal to the eternal is human souls. So then what does this prophetic truth imply? It implies for us that there's value in what you invest in. What are you investing in? Like the human soul is this precious thing 
Suddenly a human life becomes so much more valuable because, because it's the only thing that makes it beyond death. Your stuff doesn't. Your new car doesn't. The things we fixate on oftentimes will not make it. Right? So, prophetic truth should inform the way we live. Shouldn't it? Let's look at another. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9. But as it is written, I hath not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. Okay, prepared for us. Well, so that's something that we haven't received yet, right? It's prepared for us. It's waiting for us. Okay, so I hath not seen nor ear hath heard. So I can't even comprehend what God has waiting for me in a place that I can't see. In that faith place. In the place that I trust exists. And so, okay, so that informs how I perceive Christ. Jesus loves me so much that when I've been rebellious against him, that all the while he's preparing something for me in heaven. There's something that I, I get to... You know, remember the prodigal son when he came home? You guys remember this story? The prodigal son came home. And what he expected when he got home was to be a servant, right? right? Which is what we are, correct? He expected to go and to be a servant in the house of his father. But when he got there, he was made an heir and a partaker. We live in tents, as Sam said. We live in tents. We're pilgrims here. We're aliens in a foreign land. And everything here seems dark. And many times it seems hopeless. Think about your situation. Think about your family members. Think about what you've endured. Doesn't a lot of times it seem hopeless? But then when we look at a prophetic truth like this that says that God has something prepared for us and waiting for us, what kind of hope does that bring to you? Does that bring stuff into perspective? It should. 2 Timothy 4.8 says, Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord the righteous judge shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but to, unto all them also that love his appearing. We are rewarded for anxiously and joyously wait, awaiting his return. Did you get that? Okay, a prophetic truth that should affect the way we live. If we love and anticipate and, and excitedly think about Jesus Christ returning to gather us up, if we think that way, there's a crown for us. That should affect the way you live every single day. So just as the, 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 uh, the people of old, the, the, uh, the, the Pharisees, the Jews, were held accountable to what they knew and lived in terms of the prophecy of Jesus Christ, we too are held accountable. And we will be held accountable. And some of us will suffer loss because we refuse to steward in might of what we believe. Verse 4. What does this mean? What does this mean? Verse 4. We're almost done. Okay? Just a few more minutes. Bear with me. Because this is where where the thrust comes, right? This is where... You ready for that? Okay. Verse 4. And declared to be the Son of God. Okay, so the Gospel of God is a is a declaration. And prophets wrote about it. And it existed from old, right? A foretime. It existed, right? 
And many people refused the truth of, of prophecy, didn't they? Okay, don't lose me on this. Many people refused the prophecy, but some, some chose to declare it. Some chose to declare it. And declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead by whom we have received grace and apostleship for both obedience to the faith among all nations for his namesake among whom are ye also the called of Jesus Christ to whom all that be in Rome beloved of God called to be saints grace to you and peace from God our Father the Lord Jesus Christ. So this is what this is saying. Paul's confessing here that his job is to declare the name of Jesus Christ. In a long lineage and a heritage of prophets that came before him, that declared the gospel of Jesus Christ, he counts himself one a prophet, an apostle, someone who was going to go out to the Gentile people and tell them about who Jesus was. His job was to declare Jesus Christ, and he counted himself one in a long lineage of other prophets who did the same. Key point. This is big. The gospel message we carry is an old one. It's an old one. So it's crucial to look to those who've gone before us to learn what it means to be obedient to the faith. Okay, I've, I've, I've lost you guys. Okay. You want to be obedient to the faith? Well, you should learn how to do that by following those people who've been obedient to the faith in the past. So Paul, he takes a moment to point to the prophets. And he says, these people wrote about Christ. I'm writing about Christ. I am one in a long lineage of people who chose, chose to declare the name of Jesus Christ. (coughs) And that's what the Hebrew study is all about, isn't it? The study that we've been doing with Sam every week, week after week, week, that's about us learning from those that came before us what it means to be obedient to the faith. See, obedience to the faith is the idea and the notion that our faith comes with a calling. See, see, you, you don't get the option of calling yourself a Christian if you sit on the sideline. At least in the West where I teach high, school, uh, teach high school, there's a football team, and it's like a really good football team. It's won all kinds of state championships and lots of money, you know, right? Ugh, Titan football, okay? People not involved with Titan football hate Titan football. You know, here's the thing about Titan football. On the Titan football team, you've got about 30 guys that actually play. Okay? You've got about 30 guys that actually play. But the truth is there's about 100 to 120 guys suited up on the sidelines every stinking week. And guess what? They all letter. They all letter. You, you know, you guys know what I'm talking about? You know, like you get a letterman jacket. People don't do this anymore. But they get the letters, and they, I don't know what they do with them. They put them in a drawer. But the point is, is everyone gets to be acknowledged, right? But look, you can't be all state unless you get on the field. Like, Congratulations, you got that letter. Well done. You didn't do jack squat. And some of us will enter into heaven's gates in the same position. You'll have gotten the letter, but you have done nothing to earn it, and you'll have done nothing to receive any reward beyond 
just getting in. My son got a, a medal yesterday that says winner on it for playing soccer this season. They, they didn't win a whole lot, actually. Yeah, he, uh, Clementine did. She, let's be honest, though. She didn't play much. <laughs> yesterday, the game was going on. She was drawing on the sideline. Um, but here's the deal. We like to think that we all get rewards. We like to think that we all deserve it. But if you're not obedient to the faith, you don't deserve anything. I mean, praise God for his grace and his mercy, but you don't deserve. You don't deserve any sort of reward. Are you going to be obedient to the faith? Now look, it also says, among all nations. Our gospel is for all people. Man, isn't that important? That the gospel that we must obedient to steward is a gospel for every person in this world. Whether you're Indian or you're uh, Malaysian or you're uh, Hispanic or wherever it is that you come from, whatever tribe or culture or group of people that you come from, that gospel, it's for you. As much as it's my gospel, it's yours. And it's extended to you. It belongs to you. Jesus Christ belongs to you. And that's who we should be delivering the gospel to. And if we're not doing the work of, of taking the gospel to the whole world, then Midtown Baptist Temple is doing a poor job of being Christians. It's a gospel for all people. And lastly, it's for His name. Our proclamation is His name. That's what we proclaim. That's the, the declaration is His name. It's the only name worthy of proclaiming. And it's the only name worthy of honor. His name. The name of Jesus. Philippians 2.10 That the name of Jesus every knee should bow. Every knee. Of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It's a beautiful name and it's the one worth declaring. So here's the question for you. This is the question that I have for you. Okay? What does the gospel message mean to you? Does it have value? Does it? Now that might seem like an obvious question, but for some of us, we don't treat the gospel as though it has any value. Because we're not obedient to it. We're not obedient to the call. We don't declare it. We don't steward it rightly. And we're just like the Pharisees who saw the prophecies, they saw them with their very eyes, and yet couldn't make out the shape of God. And I want to suggest this, that if you don't declare the gospel, and you don't handle it the way that God intended it to be handled, then you too, only, can't even, you can't even make out the shape of God. You, you, you can't understand who He is. You've got to see those prophecies and believe that they're true. That they're divinely inspired and they're, they're intended to put you into an active position, a place of operation. We have, listen guys, listen, this is it, this is it. We have to live in light of the message. If we don't have a message, the fact that I've gone over five minutes doesn't mean anything. Okay? But, but, if this is the message of God, if this is true, if the prophecies are real, you don't get to sit on the sideline. It's time to play ball. And that means we've got to go. We've got to get to work. Because I know for a fact that at least some at West High School, where I teach, there's about 2,000 students. And I believe at least 1,000 of them don't know Jesus Christ. At least. 
I've got, I've got work to do. Where is your work, and where are you going to take the message? That's the question. And if you know that you're working through where you need to take that message, when we, as I close in prayer, grab somebody and pray. Where, how are you a part of the, the lineage of the gospel? Where do you fit? How will you declare? How will you live out your servanthood and your apostolic uh, ordination, if you will? Yeah? Let's pray that now. As I pray, grab someone and pray and work through where it is that God's sending you to take the gospel. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for this time. For, forgive me if I've gone over and this went over people's heads. Uh, I'm just a man. Uh, but God, I pray that what needs to be impressed upon us would be impressed. That, that, that God, you would show us how beautiful and how beautifully orchestrated your word is. And how, Lord, your gospel is pervasive. The name of Jesus Christ is written on every single page. And it's woven throughout your word. And even today, concerning how we should live in, in the New Testament, as believers, as the church age, Lord, your prophecies should inform the way we move. And God, I pray that you would teach us how to understand that. How we would see your promises for what they, they are and, and, and take them and declare them and make them our own. Lord, we've got work to do and we need to do it in your power. We ask that you would help us in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.